0: So, what got me thinking about bridges today is that one of our teams, as I said, is in London. I'm just setting my timer here. One of our teams is in London, and uh, Irving Perez posted, among other pictures from London, the picture of the Tower Bridge, and maybe you've seen that. But it's certainly one of the most iconic landmarks in London, And bridges like that become a thing in and of themselves. They're so beautiful, they're amazing. You want to stand on the bridge, you want to get a picture of the bridge. So whether you're at the Golden Gate Bridge or you're at the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel, the bridge becomes the thing. And what we forget about bridges is that every one of them, even the most iconic bridges, the most beautiful ones, the ones that are tourist destinations, they would not be there except for somebody was trying to get from point A to point B, and they couldn't get there without the bridge. So in the case of the Tower Bridge of London, it's not just a tourist attraction. There is a commercial district on one side where the ports of London are. There's the city of London on the other side, and they couldn't get those goods from one side to the other without a bridge, actually a series of bridges, over the Thames River. And why do the Brits say Thames anyway? It looks like Thames to me, but at any rate... So they can't get from point A to point B without a bridge. So what we forget about bridges is that the point of the bridge is not the bridge. The point of the bridge is the destination. Now I want to suggest to you in the sermon today that the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, just think about that for a moment. What do you understand is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul is going to tell us, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is not the point. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is the bridge. And today's sermon is about the destination. And the apostle Paul is bold enough to say: if it's not for getting you to the destination, there's actually no point in Jesus dying and rising again. It's really ultimately about getting you to to your destination. So in Paul's words, if there is no resurrection of the dead for you and for me, then not even Christ was raised. He didn't need to be raised. The reason he was raised, the reason he died and rose again, is so that you could get to the resurrection of the dead. Now that's the sermon in a sentence, but I'm going to talk more anyway. So as we open 1 Corinthians chapter 15, We learned that the the Corinthians don't seem to be questioning whether Jesus rose from the dead. That seems to be accepted faith. Paul says, that's what I delivered to you, it's what I received from the Lord, it's what I preached. More importantly, it's what you received, you have based your faith on that. But some of you are saying, there is no resurrection of the dead for you and me. So, There are two parts to our scripture today. Verses 1 through 11 is what Paul believes. That is the gospel. He starts there, but he's going to remind us that's only the bridge. From verses 12 all the way through the end of the chapter, and we'll be covering that next week as well, from verses 12 to the end of the chapter is about you, it's about your resurrection. And Paul uh, picks it up from there and he says, it's not only what I believe about Jesus, it's what I believe about you and me that is so significant to this argument. Now in verses 3 to 8 of our text, Paul names two key beliefs in the gospel. Christ died and Christ rose again. Now there's more language than that, but the rest of the language seems to be a supporting argument for the two main parts of the gospel. Christ died, Christ rose again. What he says is Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. So the gospel for Paul is what Christ did. First of all, it's who he is. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. And then it's what he did. He died, but it's also why he did it, for our sins. That's a that's a phrase that we have become so accustomed to, we sort of gloss over it in church. So for my confirmands, I try to offer... Um, an illustration that maybe they can relate to a little bit better. And I say to them, let's suppose you get in trouble. And I will ask them, like, what kinds of things do you do to get in trouble? Well, I didn't, you know, take out the trash or whatever my mom wanted me to do. Okay, so what is your discipline for getting in trouble? Well, I I, I lose my uh, smartphone. I lose my Internet privileges for two weeks or whatever if I do something really bad. Okay, so then I set up for them, so what if your sibling, your brother or sister said, Oh, I feel so bad for Bobby, like he can't have his phone for two weeks. I'll take his punishment for him. Like, you can have my phone, Dad, so that my brother can have his phone. And then I look at these 12-year-olds and I go like, would your brother do that for you? No, never, ever. So this is what I want you to understand. I'm saying to them, when we just say glibly Christ died for our sins, we mean Christ actually took the, the consequences of our sin, the punishment that we were owed when he died, he died our death. And Paul says that's of first importance. And it's according to the scriptures. And then he says he was buried, but the burial seems to be like proof that he was really dead. You don't bury live people. So he died for our sins according to the scriptures and was buried. And then he gets to a second main point, which is he was raised the third day according to the scriptures. So, This is the second pillar that Paul says is absolutely essential to the gospel, and it weaves its way through uh, all of Paul's letters. This is the point of Jesus' life, and you know all of this. So this is actually the earliest creed of the Bible. Uh, You could maybe argue that the one sentence, Jesus is Lord, is an even more primitive and shorter creed. But in terms of any content that approaches what we call the Apostles' Creed, this is it. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 2 and 3. Christ died, he was buried, he rose again, and he appeared. And this is, again, evidence for Paul that he appeared to Peter and James and to the original apostles and last of all, and to 500. And Paul says, last of all, he appeared to me as to one abnormally born, By the way, that word translated abnormally born is a word that would be used of miscarriage or an abortion. So basically what Paul is saying is, I wasn't supposed to live. Spiritually speaking, I was not supposed to live. And yet Jesus appeared to me so that I would live. And this again is Paul's objective verification that Christ rose from the dead. He appeared to all these people. And then he appeared to me personally. There's a subjective, I know this Christ, and he goes on to talk about the grace that appeared to him. And so he's saying, this Jesus has changed my life. Can you imagine anything more radical than a persecutor of Christians coming to faith and proclaiming this gospel? That could only happen if it's really true that the risen Lord Jesus Christ appeared to me. So this is his primitive creed. Christ died, he was buried, he rose again, he was raised by the Father on the third day, Friday being the first, Sunday being the third, and he appeared to all these people as ratification that this is true, that he was truly raised from the dead. And this, Paul says, all of it in a package deal is of first importance. As the centuries went on, a few other lines were added to Paul's affirmation and to what we call the Apostles' Creed. And one of the points of the creed was added precisely because of the rest of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So Paul could have stopped at verse 11, and the creed probably would have stopped at, I believe in God the Father Almighty, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord, He was crucified, died, buried, rose again, coming again, and I believe in the Holy Spirit. But instead, the creed goes on to add some other elements of our faith that are just as essential, and when Paul says, I believe in the resurrection of the dead, he actually says, hear me now, because you've probably never thought about this a whole lot, he says it is just as essential to the Christian message that you and I will be raised from the dead as it is that Jesus himself died and was raised from the dead. That's just as critical to the message. In fact, he says, in very strong language, he says, if it isn't true... All this business about resurrection, Christ's resurrection, and yours, then our faith ultimately doesn't matter. Paul himself is a liar, verse 15. We're still in our sins, verse 17. Those who died before us, whom we're hoping to see again, are lost, verse 19. And Christians are actually the most to be pitied of anyone. We are pitiable idiots. Not just if Christ didn't rise from the dead, but if you're not going to rise from the dead, if we're not going to rise from the dead, if this life is all we have, then it's absolutely absurd for us to be worshiping and serving and loving and trying to do the right thing and honoring God and trusting in Jesus Christ. It's ridiculous if there is no resurrection from the dead. Now, verses 1 to 11, as I said, are the bridge to the Destination. The bridge is critical, and Jesus is the only bridge. That's what we preach. That's what Paul said. That's what Jesus said. Jesus is the only bridge to the destination. But I want to ask you for a moment, how many of you think very much about what is the destination? So if Jesus is the bridge to the destination, what is the destination? So you want me to say heaven. And that's true, and it's a very important central biblical concept, but it can also misdirect as well. And in this passage, until later in the chapter, Paul doesn't say, Jesus died and rose again so that you could go to heaven. What he says is, he died and rose again so that you could attain the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection is the destination. Now, why does that matter? I love thinking about heaven I love talking about heaven, but a lot of what we believe about heaven is kind of guesswork. We don't know for sure. There's a veil there. And ultimately, heaven is not what's most important. So here again, I'm sort of challenging some assumptions. I already said the gospel only matters so that you can have the resurrection of the dead. Now I'm saying heaven is not really the point. That's not the point of your destination. The point of your destination is what happens when you get to heaven. So let me illustrate it this way. I love my house. I spend a lot of time. Uh, I've done, we've lived there 20 years. I've done a lot of projects. In fact, as of Friday, uh, the entire upper floor of our house has been, has been resurfaced by me personally. Uh, I've had a little bit of help along the way, but like I have, in three bedrooms Two bathrooms, a laundry room, several closets, like I've put down the floor on the upstairs of our home. As of Friday, and that also means, by the way, for you long-termers, that I've replaced the toilet in both successfully. So usually Corinth people have been here longer than 20 years laugh when Bob tells a plumbing story because I used to tell some really bad, disastrous plumbing stories. People, I can plumb, okay? I just did it on Friday. The toilet works fine. It doesn't leak. So... Uh, I love putting time and effort into my house. Love those kinds of projects. Love them when they're done. But it's not because it's a house. I don't love it because of the floors or the ceiling or the roof or the, or the vinyl siding or, you know, any, or the furniture that's there. I don't love it because of that. You know, I love my house because Linda lives there with me. I get to go home to somebody to enjoy that home. It's where we raised our children. It's where we bring our children home. Love lives in that house. And because love lives in that house, I want to take care of it, and it matters to me because of who's there. It's the relationships that exist within the context of that home, not the building itself. You follow me? So heaven is not the point. Heaven is the place and what happens in heaven is the relationships for which you and I were created. You were made in the image of God to love and be loved, to know and be known. You were made in the image of God to experience connection with God and with other people, with human beings. Jesus was took a human body and ascended to heaven in his body so that when you get there, you can relate to him as a person just like you, a whole person, body, soul, and spirit. And when God redeemed you, he didn't just redeem your soul, he redeemed your body and soul. And so what the Apostle Paul is telling us is what, what's awaiting for us on the other side is not just a place, even a beautiful place, however you imagine it, it's not about the place, it's about the relationships, it's about the people, it's about the love. And in order for that kind of love to exist, whole person to whole person, there must be a resurrection of the body. From the beginning, God's design was that he would redeem all of you so that all of you could connect with all of him and with others in this place that we call heaven, heaven. And the Apostle Paul says, if we don't believe in the resurrection of the body, and he says to the Corinthians, some of you say you don't believe that? He's going, then your faith is futile. If it's only for this life, then go do what you want to do. You know, like it doesn't really matter what you do with your body. And this was part of the problem among the Corinthian church. I'm tempted to sort of review the whole letter of Corinthians uh, that Paul writes, this first letter, because the body is a very important concept in this book. From the beginning, Paul says that what you do with your body matters. What he's pushing back against is that there were some Greek philosophies, not all of them, that said it doesn't matter what you do with your body, what matters is what you do with your soul and your mind. And Paul says, Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. It matters. Sexual immorality matters because your body belongs to Him. And then the way you treat other people as we saw last week when you come to the communion table and you who are wealthier or maybe it's your home or you have more privilege, elbow your way to the front and eat all the food and get drunk while those who are less privileged come late and they don't. That matters. Like how you live in the body matters when you are in community. And now Paul says even your eternal existence matters in the body. So I just want to say to you that this is the culmination of Paul's entire letter, and the message to you is your body matters. It matters that you get your body in church so that you're in actually personal relationship with people who love Jesus and you can learn and grow from them. I was going to say it matters that you get your butt in church, but I didn't think I should say that in church, only I just did. So it matters that you get your body there. It matters what you do with your mouth. It matters that you use your hands and arms and feet to serve Jesus, to tell of Jesus, to give the good news. As Kevin told us in Sunday school this morning, some of these ways we can bridge people, you have to do that with your body when you work for justice in this world, as we're going to introduce some opportunities this fall, and you can get involved at Viewmont Elementary School or Hickory High School, when you work for a better world, what you do with your body matters in this life because Christ redeemed all of you. And why would he redeem all of you if it wasn't his intent that all of you should be in right relationship with him forever? That's why the resurrection of the body matters. And once again, Paul says... If your resurrection doesn't matter, I didn't say this, Paul did. If your resurrection doesn't matter, then Jesus' resurrection doesn't matter. If you're not going to be raised, if God can't do that, if he can't recompose all of your elements into a glorified body, then he couldn't do it for Jesus either. So you can't have one or the other. It's a package deal. If Christ was raised, you who believe in Christ will be raised. I'm aware that that raises a handful of questions. So let me just wrap up with a little bit of Q&A and I'll be done. Question number one, well, what is that resurrection body like? And for Paul, that is a question A we can't answer. And he almost addresses it like what a stupid question to ask. That's like looking at an acorn and saying, "You know, what what do you suppose an oak tree would look like?" You'll never find that out by looking at the acorn. The acorn goes in the ground; it dies, and what comes out of it is the same basic, you know, molecular uh, uh, structure. I'm not a biologist, okay? The same basic DNA that created it, but it it comes up something very different than what was planted in the ground. So, what we know about our bodies is that they will be glorified and spiritual and eternal and incorruptible. There will be a continuity and a discontinuity with our bodies. Even Jesus, the first time people often saw him after his resurrection, they'd go like, who is that stranger? And then when they, when they knew who it was, they'd go like, oh, yeah, that's Jesus. Well, that's because there's a basic continuity and discontinuity. So Jesus could still eat, but he didn't need to eat. Jesus could be physically present with his disciples, and they could touch him. He invited them to touch him, but he could also walk through a door. So, there's some hint here that there's both similarity and dissimilarity with our resurrection body. And no, we can't know all the details any more than you can predict an oak tree from an acorn. Second question then, what about cremation? Like, is it wrong to cremate a body if the bodies are going to be raised from the dead? And I want to say, don't worry about it either way. Given enough time, all bodies are cremated. All right? It either happened immediately. (laughs) In a furnace somewhere, they happen over time, and so this, we all return to dust, given enough time, right? So saying that God is worried about cremation is like going, well, I think if there's a, 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 um, a well-embalmed body, God could probably raise that one, but I don't think he can raise one that's from the dust. I mean, really? Really? So God's not too worried about that, in Bob's humble opinion. When does resurrection happen? Now here's an interesting point, because all the scriptures that deal with the, re- the resurrection of the dead talk about it at the end of the age. So this is a future event. You don't die and you're immediately your body isn't immediately raised. Okay, which raises the next question. What happens between the time when you die and the resurrection of the dead? And that's a tough one. In theology, we call it the intermediate state. And once again, we have some hints in the Bible, but not a lot of finality. What Paul says is that you shouldn't be concerned about that because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So whatever's going on, we are with the Lord. So let me give you my favorite theory about it, which is, I think it's a good theory, but it's not directly from the Bible. A, college, a Bible college professor once said, what if, because there's no time outside our dimension, there really isn't an intermediate state? And when I die, uh, there's no time that passes. I'm raised... And I walk into eternity with my dad, who died a few years ago, with Martin Luther, with the Apostle Paul, with all of the saints who have gone before, we just get there all at the same time. So again, I love that theory, I can't prove it from Scripture, but don't worry a lot about the intermediate state, God's got that too. And finally, again, to, to, to say it in slightly different words, why does resurrection matter? Why does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15, your faith is absurd if not for the resurrection of the body, your body? And the reason ultimately this matters is the same reason any other theological issue matters. It's because ultimately resurrection is about God. It's about the love of God. It's about the power of God. It's about the mystery of God. It's about the mystery of God because there are some things that we don't know about how God designs what. You know, I'm a pretty simple person. I can't even figure out how life biologically works, much less how God is going to make new life work. That's okay. God has some things that he holds in his hands as personal mystery, and this is another one that takes us there. That's okay. But it's also about the power of God. Because if I say there's no resurrection, what I'm basically saying is my mind can't wrap itself around the idea of, you know, cremation or not, a body dying, and it takes literally hours for all of the functions to shut down. And when it's shut down, it's really shut down. And two or three days later, like, you can't bring it back. My mind can't wrap myself around the fact that somehow God can reconstitute that body, much less one that's been dead for a thousand years. And you're limiting the power of God. The one who created life itself can reconstitute life. He can. He will. But ultimately, the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead is about the love of God. God never would have created you if He didn't want to love you and didn't want you to love Him. And love in this context means a whole person relationship of communication, of presence of being together. And God says, I love you so much that I don't want to just have, you know, a relationship with zombies or like the ghost army from Lord of the Rings. I want to have a relationship with you as a person, a whole person. And to do that, I'm going to raise you from the dead in the same way that I raised my son Jesus from the dead so we could share eternity together. So, the destination is the resurrection of the dead. And without the destination, the bridge doesn't matter. But because of the destination, the bridge is of first importance. And as we gather together around the table of the Lord this morning, we gather together to remember the bridge. That without the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, We have no hope, no hope to be with God, no hope to be with one another in his presence. So today I invite you to gather around this table and give thanks and remember and proclaim that he died for your sins according to the scriptures and that he rose again according to the scriptures so that you might rise too. I invite you to prepare yourself for communion by taking the red hymnal in front of you. And there are a number of prayers at the back. And we don't turn here very often, so I just need to mention that this follows all of the hymns. So if you still have notes, keep turning to the back of the red hymnal toward the very back. And there are page numbers uh, at the bottom, only my book doesn't have the page number. So it's prayer number seven called Confession. Uh, responsive prayer. It's after the responsive readings. There are scripture readings and then there's some prayers. Uh, prayer number seven, confession. And for many of you, it's not your tradition to use liturgical prayers like this, and maybe it seems a little bit rote. Please don't make it rote. Like, f- ponder these words. Make them your prayer as we prepare to share in the Lord's Supper. So will you join me, please, as we confess our sins And I'll begin, and then you respond with the words in all capital letters. Let us pray together. Most merciful Father, the Spirit of purity and grace, whose salvation is never far from the contrite heart, be merciful to us. Forgive our iniquities of thought and word and deed. May your forgiveness kindle our wonder Banish our fear and fill us with gratitude. Forgive our broken vows, the better purposes we have allowed to grow weak, the good resolutions we have not kept, and the pretenses we have made to hide from ourselves our unfaithful lives. Forgive our words of unjust anger and bitterness our readiness to blame others, and our want, our lack, of thoughtfulness, patience, kindness, and sympathy. From the sins of evil passion, which estrange our hearts from goodness and dim our vision of heavenly things, from all hardness of heart and impenitence of spirit, and from pride and self-sufficiency. From secret faults and careless ways, from yielding to the temptations to which by nature we are exposed, and from going back to any sin of which we have repented. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who of thy great mercy has promised forgiveness of sins to all them who with hearty repentance and true faith turn to you, have mercy on us. Pardon and deliver us from all our sins. Confirm and strengthen us in all goodness and bring us to everlasting life through Jesus Christ, our Lord.